0: Um, yesterday I was thinking about questioning the wisdom of doing this paper because celebrity chefs isn't my area of expertise. We don't have many celebrity chefs in Ecuador where I've done the majority of my fieldwork. But this paper kind of comes from um, I was invited sort of at the end of about a year or so ago, end of last year, something like that, to do a public engagement <coughs> panel at King's London um, around celebrity chefs with the head of the Culinary Arts institute Food Ethics Council. Um, and they kind of broke me in as a random anthropologist and, and I said, I don't even know what to say about celebrity chefs. But it's around kind of how such chefs inform um, eating practices. And off the back of that, in one of those stupid aside comments when I said, oh, maybe I'll write this up, this is quite fun to think about. Um, I think I said, oh, got told that there was a special edition of Food Culture and Society coming out and that I should be doing an or chapter or article for it. So what I'm doing today, Um, Is an aspect of that chapter, and because it's food culture and society, I wouldn't not to diminish the journal, but it's not necessarily kind of the most sophisticated analysis. But the reason that I wanted to really kind of do this one uh, piece of work today is that I've just started work on a book for Bloomsbury, which is thinking about the ways that um, the eating body, the individual eating body, is mediated or mediates through eating a whole range of cultural authorities of food, at various, located at various different scales, from kinship and the family through to local government, public health, nutrition, the state, the market, the media, as I work through up through those scales, and how they, how all of those different authorities that are at times in conflict, sometimes align, how they get brought together through the act of eating, and how agency, then kind of what networks that creates, and the way that agency is dispersed across those networks, or something very familiar. And obviously, celebrity chefs will play a part in that, in the discussion of the media and the role they have in terms of influencing or possibly interfering in um, how we eat. So, I was, I'm not sure if it's kind of this paper's premature in a way, because some of this thing hasn't been done, but I'd really like to have your input of the way that you can think about some of this based on this data. So, I think we've got about half an hour, something like 14 minutes max. Brilliant. A simple act of turning on a television cooking program or logging onto a chef's website, consumers invite celebrity chefs into the private domain of their homes. Channeled through an increasing array of multimedia platforms, from television on demand to Twitter feeds and smartphone apps, chefs enter lounges, domestic and kitchens, even the bedrooms of consumers and viewers, permeating domestic spaces with new ingredients, equipment and cooking techniques. In turn, the cookery programs, with cookery programs located increasingly uh, less in professional contracts and, and restaurant kitchens, consumers are invited to enter their often staged and aspirational homes of celebrity chefs. So we are invited, for example, oh, these are some examples of apps and technology. I find the Jamie one terrifying, by the way. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we are invited to sit, for instance, and have supper with Nigel Slater in his. Rather aspirational home. Um, cook or kind of enjoy a summer, uh, summer evening at River Cottage with a couple of celebrity friends, perhaps as well. Cook along with Gordon on Christmas Day, perhaps again with another celebrity in on one of those most intimate of occasions, or perhaps most intimately, raid the fridge after hours with Nigella Lawson. <coughs> so, even on the occasion celebrity chefs are on the road, we are invited again to share such adventures and experiences. For instance, we're invited to ride Shotgun with Jamie Oliver as he tours the USA, or travel exploring exotic markets with Rick Stein on his far eastern Spanish and Indian odysseys. There is so much to do with Rick Stein in terms of his exoticisation of the other, but we'll leave that for another day. It's just too easy and too tempting. This form of domestic media presentation arguably creates an intimacy between the chef and the consumer which is further compounded when chefs' private struggles and family lives are laid bare on screen, a strategy that has perhaps been most usefully and successfully deployed by Oliver, as Rousseau has argued. As Collins explains, cookery programmes are particularly strong examples of the way that television networks have purposefully looked to foster intimacy between host and viewer, insomuch that they've selected chefs that they feel that um, consumers can personally relate to that's one of the things I want to try and bring out in this paper a little bit. Compounding this is the way that chefs directly address the camera and their viewers in a conversational style, thereby removing, as a demo has argued, the aesthetic distance between performer and audience. Social media, for example, particularly Twitter, kind of creates and compounds this type of relationship and takes it to another level. And you've only just got to have a kind of brief, of glance through at Gordon Ramsay, at Jamie Oliver, at Nigella Lawson, for example, to see that this isn't a unilineal kind of uh, relationship, that there is, this, however staged or however many members of staff working for that particular chef or cook are actually kind of feeding these tweets and retweeting, there is this sense of kind of following, and again I pick up that theme of following a little bit later, perhaps could be make more of. So these affective relationships are, not, are, are thus fostered not just through the virtual commensality of shared meals, food, events, and experiences but also through the media techniques that aim to draw consumers into chefs' semi-personalised networks and encourages the consumer to return the favour. In many respects, kind of chefs now give instead of demanding customer attention. So In this article, what I want to try and do is unpack the intimacies and draw attention to the industry that lies behind the coziness and warmth, for example, Nigella satin pyjamas or you know, balmy summer evenings spent at the River Cottage. In particular, I explore the ways in which consumers form and enact effective relationships with celebrity chefs through material objects, both brands. In the large paper, um, I've worked on branded and unbranded objects, cookbooks, and ingredients. And today, I'm just going to focus on non branded objects and ingredients. Now, cookbooks, again, is an interesting area. And the question that always jumps out at me in cookbooks is why kind of cookbook sales are growing exponentially at the time when we have this huge democratisation of recipes and of easy access through social media. The way that they're used in slightly different ways. Celebrity chefs do not enter consumers' homes unencumbered, nor are they temporary guests. Rather, they arrive laden with multiple material croutements, such as cookbooks, kitchen, gadgets and ingredients. These material objects and the ways they are used and materially experienced by consumers Creates, I argue, an absent presence drawing on Natalia, through which the fame of chefs is produced and enacted, drawing on Gail. Once invited, chefs also tend to loiter. As individuals, their fame may be short-lived; they can fall from favour or be replaced by the latest chef de jour. And I kind of chart a little bit about how they do fall from favour, particularly in the case of Oliver. Yet collectively, as a group, though not necessarily as a homogenous group, celebrity chefs penetrate the domestic spaces of consumers through their material artefacts, making their homes, particularly their kitchens, conversely more professionalised and potentially industrialised. As such, chefs' presence, we could argue, continues long after consumers turn off the television or power down the app. And what I want to further do in this, consequently, I want to further draw attention in this article to the ways that a focus on the under-examined material world of celebrity chefs and the ways they are experienced can deepen our understanding of both effective and commercial relations between consumers and retailers and the ways that these are reproduced. Um, and to this end, I suppose, my discussion can be situated within the broader context of current debates regarding kind of attempts to food, Personalised supply networks that reconnected food strategies, marketing strategies. I should point out I've had a huge amount of freedom with this article in a way that I wouldn't have normally in terms of the methodology. Um, my research participants are predominantly urban, 30 to 50, not necessarily foodies and wouldn't identify themselves as foodies as such, but have an interest in food, generally professional middle classes, um, but I've been allowed to to take an approach that's included some autoethnographic reflections, which has been fun, um, questionnaires, and some focus group discussions and all that but also photo um, a number of informal interviews, and kitchen walkthroughs. And some of my, my research participants really kind of got into it, and i had these photos pretty much just sent to me constantly of things that whenever they saw a celebrity chef um, uh, present in through their daily lives. So if I started with my own ethnographic explorations of my own kitchen, it started to bring home this idea to me, or started to give me this indication that it wasn't just branded equipment. And I think it was also a an off the cuff comment by, by Anna started me to ah, actually, I think about this. Uh, so it didn't take much, when I'm looking at my own kitchen cupboards, it didn't take much to oh, reflection on my part to realise that really the decisions to purchase the Kenwood, Kenwood chef may have perhaps being driven by perceived needs and brand values, but I also connected that product to Marcus Waring. Moreover, Mary Berry, I think, or Isomise, was at least partially responsible for this Madeleine mould that kind of lurks in the bottom of the cupboard that hasn't been really used following the Great British Bake Off. Um, Valentine Warner, the deep pie dish, the ice cream maker, I think I could pretty much trace to Nigella Lawson and Jamie Oliver. Um, Hugh Fernley Whittenstall and Paul Hollywood, definitely for the bread proofing baskets and Heston Blumenthal, of course, for the Molecular Gastronomy kit, which has never been opened. <laughs> so, these products, and this may speak, perhaps, um, of my own participation in multiple cookery phases, tw- wins and trends, and perhaps my own gullibility, um, but also kind of the ways in which I think that celebrity chefs and their unique position of authority and influence, coupled, coupled with uh, the media and food marketing industry, the way that they can shape our actions and practices as much as they reflect them. For example, the resurgent interest in baking is in part, arguably contributable to programs such as the Great British Bake Off and the rediscovery of Mary Berry as a national treasure. Um, These can be seen as examples of celebrity, the market and media producing recent food fashions or fads with which consumers engage. The influences here are numerous, um, entwined and often, often mutually enforcing, not necessarily always, Blue corporate. if you think about these broader food networks, restaurants, chefs, critics, bloggers, television programmes, social networks, retailers, lobby groups, marketing and branding agencies, food networks, alternative food networks and consumers. There's a lot of people and actors and agency in this, in this uh, situation. And it would be impossible, and um, probably futilely, to attempt to disentangle this myriad of multifaceted factors act, and actors then I say that, and I think this is exactly what I'm trying to do in the book, um, so maybe really setting myself to fail. And assess their relative influence. We can, however, I think, point to the specific actors, agents, and institutions that in particular contexts exert influence, whether it's intentional or not, over consumers and the way that consumers respond and engage with that, and the mechanisms through which they do so. And so really I'm kind of interested in the way here that consumers negotiate their own relationships with celebrity chefs through material objects, um, and likewise the way that they challenge celebrity chef authority as well. It's certainly not just one dimensional So back to my own kitchen then, what struck me was the ways I was able to trace specific items of kitchen equipment, seemingly brandless commodified objects to a specific celebrity chef, and start to identify the object's social lives. In so doing, I made the impersonal and generic, the alienate, alienated and specialised commodity, personal and particular, embodying, embedding the object in a relationship, or specifically my relationship, with that particular chef. Further discussions and kitchen walkthroughs with my research participants suggested I was not alone. It constantly, consistently made connections between everyday kitchen items um, and various different chefs who appeared kind of parties to be plucked out thin air, and in part primarily which I'll pick up on because of the recipes as well that those objects for which these objects have been required. It wasn't just a case of, you know, kind of, I associate this object because it was purchased quite often for a reason. This practice of making the invisible visible the, and the impersonal personal has not been uncommon, of course, in food retailing. But in these contexts, the labelling or branding is driven very much by the retailer or producer. An attempt to reconnect the consuming masses to the individual, individual producer-grower chef, and imbue the economic transaction with sociality. Yet the, di- the dynamics here, I think, differ in so much that they are enacted by the consumer, who overlays their own meaning and creates their own social relation with a celebrity chef through a particular object or objects. In other words, individuals embed their commodities in networks of affective relations drawing an association between an item and a specific individual who they don't know, but whom they feel that they have a relationship, know kind of physically, or depends on the question what you know is. As such, the object provides a pivot around which the relationship between consumer and chef is fostered beyond just kind of television shows, and, and I'm including also technology and apps in this. And in in the paper, I kind of expand this by thinking about Gale's theory of distributed personhood to think about kind of how objects and personal engagement with them actually create and formulate our worlds and our social relations, applying that to celebrity chefs, I think um, we can start to interpret their fame uh, loosely as constructed and circulated not by the chef themselves, but also by the consumer through objects. Consumers then must become complicit actors in the process and, as such, create the environment that enables chefs to influence or interfere, depending on how strong you want to go, um, with their food um, preferences. So, I'm arguing here really that it's this consumer engagement, they are creating the environment, they are the ones who are distributing and, and reproducing the fame of the individual chef. Um, and I'm drawing you know, in this whole post on obviously work on creative consumption that engages with um, that sort of theme. And I think this comes through kind of even more clearly when I think about um, some of my participants' responses. So celebrity chefs um, are not just in- instrumental in bringing kitchen equipment into our homes, they make their presence felt through new t- ingredients, cooking techniques and dishes, shaping not only the food that consumers procure, prepare and ingest, but also the ways that they do so. And this process is, is double-edged. At one level we can think of this as influence and interference, and in another way we can argue that kind of well, this is democratization of food knowledge, it's kind of knowledge that was originally kind of held by the elite, has become suddenly available to the masses. Um, I mean, I'll pick up that theme towards the end. But the, what I want to kind of draw out here is the way that Chef's influence is actually quite precarious, um, with their reputations being balanced particularly on notions of authenticity and being real. And according to one of my that's my participants' phrases. So, Along with branded, equipment, you know, kind of, we just have to look at kind of the briefest of scroll, you know, through any supermarket or something. Anyway, we can see kind of the amount of branded, um, or the, the amount of relationship between chefs and food retailer, host, Of course, with Heston, um, Delia Smith has been dropped from Waitrose, Doesn't mean quite fit with brand anymore. Who knows? Um, <coughs> and you know, kind of the, obvious, the obvious, kind of, you know, ones are the Jamie Oliver being the one. Um, and we can think about kind of the term of the chef, the, you know, the chef effect, whether it's the Delia effect or the Jamie effect, you know, kind of when this initial advert aired, um, and perhaps I've got a meat thermometer <coughs> that proves that again, um, Waitrose had kind of sales of increase of 1 million in terms of rhubarb, ginger and meat thermometers. Um, the chef effect in terms of its economic impact is significant and, you know, there's all sorts of stories about Delia, um, Delia Smith. You know, kind of single-handedly saving small companies because she's promoted their pan, or cranberries have suddenly become trendy because of you know, kind of a recipe. So we think about these spikes. But this relationship between chefs and retailers is potentially problematic for a number of my research participants: overexposure, self-evident economic interests, and the selection of a partner deemed inappropriate to consumers. I'd like to pick up a little bit on that because there's an element of proprietorship from, with the, my research participants in the way that they view their chefs. And you have to have this aligning of brand values and completely to decrease in popularity and the questioning of the chef's authenticity. So, as Gaynor explains, and she sent me a photograph of Jamie Oliver, excuse some of my um, research participants' language, um, his face is on, you can fill in the blanks, everything, and I was in boots today and he's now doing packages sandwiches. She later showed me the back, the inside back cover of Jamie magazine. So she hasn't stopped so much that she's still buying his magazine. There's kind of this interesting kind of trade-off going on. That lists this whole range of commercial enterprises, including restaurants, food products, wood-fired oven, kitchen equipment, and homewares. And her response to this, when I asked her how this, what she thought of Jamie or seeing this, I think is worth quoting in full. Um, Well, I guess when I saw the long line of businesses, it opened my eyes that Jamie really is just a business. He promotes the idea that he cares about food and what and how we consume, which I'm sure he does. But that sincerity (coughs) is brought into question somewhat when I see his range of wood fire ovens, seeds and plants, on the go pre-packed sandwiches and homeware. It appears he has fingers in every pie there is, be it Italian, British wood smoked or barbecued. Seriously, the guide must be loaded. He also cannot be involved directly with each of these projects and campaigns when he has so many. How much of Jamie is Jamie? Not much, I imagine. Similarly, Laura was keen to discuss Oliver's prepared fish products, explaining that once while she had while she had once agreed with his politics and had respected him, she thought that he was now selling out in her words, saying, How can you be taken seriously as a chef and talk about the quality of <coughs> dinners when you're promoting fish fingers and basically using your name to sell crap food? I love the juxtaposition between her value judgment that it's crap food and Jamie's his own, saying these are my brilliant fish fingers. This theme of selling out was recurrent in a number of my discussions and suggests that my participants not only have high expectations and moral, value systems around celebrity chefs, but that their popularity and their potential influence is based on the affinity between consumer and chef values. Any indication that this empathy is not as strong as imagined can result in consumer distancing, a point exemplified later on again by Gaynor, who after seeing a telev- television advert sent me this message. Again, great language we have. Um, Mary Berry has sold herself to the Daily Mail and then I carried on she went, I like her less, I think. Um, again we see this kind of affinity with Vase. At a later date she then continued her Oliver of rants to me by comparing her to Lenge but comparing him to Otto Lenge, who she has seen during a question and answer session at a literary festival. And again, just to remind you, these are kind of urban thirty to fifty professionals, so it's not surprising that we have these views, but I think the language is interesting. Compare that, he's referring to all of his listed businesses, to Dear Otto, who, when asked at Hay last year when and if he would open a restaurant in Wales or at least outside of London, said he probably wouldn't because he wouldn't be able to maintain the oh-so-important close eye on a daily basis in his restaurants, which ensured the food remained authentically Otto. (coughs) That stirred more respect and belief that his food was important to him than seeing Jamie's long list of business ventures on the back page of his branded magazine. The authentic product, then, in this in this chef context, doesn't just refer to the dishes we're used to thinking about, kind of authentic foods in the heritage context, but also the chefs themselves and what their their value system. And of course, what authenticity is is, of course, highly subjective. And I'm trying to tease out how they um, how my research participants start to create this idea of who is authentically a chef and what kind of tensions do they um, start to negotiate through there. Because they don't have, my participants didn't have an issue with chef's commercial endeavours per se. You know, kind of, they were very astute, what came out in a number of discussions, they were very astute about the industry with which they were engaging. Um, you know, kind of, and they would be quite happy say, you know, kind of, well, I know I'm buying the cookbooks, and I know I'm being duped, and so on and so can, Yeah, Hessen can easily steer me to waitress. They're aware of, of that. But at the same time, what they do object to... Is when they feel that they or they, they believe that economic gain is compromising the chef's love and personal involvement with food. So what we have is dear Otto here being contrasted significantly to the loaded Oliver, with one perceived to be living his value and the other is too business orientated. There's something going and self interested. There's something here as well about very much the proprietorship of, of chefs. I think because there's a sense of think kind of um, Laura's quote is quite telling in that she believed his brand, or believed his brand values, as it were. If you think of Jane particularly as a brand, um, but there's a sense that when she, he started selling mass market products and being you know, kind of everywhere and kind of doing ready meals, um, there's a sense that somehow, kind of, he wasn't their chef anymore. He'd gone too mass market. He'd gone too popular. Rousseau has, where are we? That. Rousseau has drawn attention to the ways in which being real is increasingly traded as a commodity in the food media world. Oliver has many ways exemplified this approach, and his current fall from grace among some of my participants perhaps indicates that he has become a victim of his own success. His belief in authenticity is arguably experienced more strongly because his career to date has been built on a representation of being real and authentic. But, as Rousseau points out, being real just doesn't equate to cooking experience or culinary training, but also, as Gaynor and Laura's comments, I can also show. It incorporates their private lives, their physical outlets, their personal backgrounds, food values, this idea of practicing what is preached, Um, commercial enterprises, their business partners, their value affinities are also on the list. Looks also come out on the list a little bit particularly, and that's very gendered. Um, as we may expect, there's nothing necessarily that surprising there. Um, you know, I think some of the comments that I had about Lorraine Pascal, kind of, I you know, kind of, I want a chef to be a chef, not a model who's pretending to be a chef, despite kind of various training. So, there's different kind of looked values, the whole package, really. I think when I look at, going back to my conference, I think about that Waitrose campaign, I certainly think my meet-moms perhaps came from that. But when I asked my participants to then go into their store cupboards, um, Kelly kind of typified um, many of the responses I had when I asked kind of whether any new ingredients or new foods that she had purchased and tried because of TV chefs. Um, oh my God, so much. Almost all, because in order to execute an so lengthy recipe, here's what I remember. And then she goes off and comes And of course, it's quite some very specific ingredients on this list, ones that had to be sought out. And what I kind of bring out in, in the longer article, which I'm interested in kind of teasing out a little bit more, um, is the way that here because of their affinity of, of values and because they think, you know, even though my participants are astute in terms of the industry, because of this affinity that they think kind of, that Otto is theirs and he's dear Otto and he's this intimacy and he believes in his food, his commercial enterprises are very much pushed to, to the background. You know, the fact that most of these ingredients were sourced from his rather expensive website Gets ignored by most of my participants, and he gets contrasted significantly with, with Oliver, who's so obviously economically self interested. Here, kind of this the, the brand values, these attempt this intimate relationship with the chef tends to kind of obscure a lot of these commercial enterprises, and my participants pretty much kind of see these, see this sort of activity in this sort of web only kind of these website as completely different from Jamie Oliver's relationship with Sainsbury's, for example. Like Kelly's connection to her new foods to Waterlenging, many my fiscals also explained that new ingredients had been purchased with a Pacific chef's recipe or style of cooking in mind. And it's that style of cooking which I think some starts to make their influence stronger potentially. Others, however, kind of had a slightly different explanation. For instance, Lily rationalised a long list of Far Eastern Odyssey purchases as she called them by explaining they featured heavily in the recipes, and the photography and presentation of the book is so good that you immediately get drawn in and want to go and buy all of the ingredients. We can kind of see echoes of the culture industry perhaps here. Um, she watched a television show, bought the book, and then purchased the ingredients. Buying into a lifestyle fantasy the chef and media is selling, it is the chef effect as experienced by the consumer. But as I'm kind of keen to point out, this isn't a unilineal process. What is striking about a number of the comments is the way that my participants constructed connections between a chef and the ingredients in their own kitchens. Thus, as with equipment, invisible threads of intimacy are created and fostered by the meanings and interpretations that consumers lay over particular foodstuffs. There's no reason why palm oil has to be associated with offlenghi, for example. This is what the consumers are overlaying, my participants are overlaying into the process thus as other oh, So I'm not saying here the experience isn't guided and influenced by media and marketers and, and retailers. To do so I think would pay little heed to the political and economic structures of the food industry. But what I want to kind of draw attention to is the active roles that consumers play, as gamers and Laura's comments testify in creating the pedestal on which they place celebrity chefs and then chart their form. Whether fans or critics, celebrity chefs then are just as much products of consumers' imaginations as they are of the media. And I've kind of spent, again, with Rick Stein, I could go to Absolute Town uh, with his list of supplies, particularly if you look at things like Food Heroes, and again, that was seen as very different. You know, I, I argue that's not that dissimilar from Jamie Oliver's packaged sandwiches. It's still guiding and directing consumers to different outlets, and it's still value, you know, kind of laden, obviously, with the value system. However, my participants saw through the Jamie Oliver sandwiches, less you know, kind of far more kind of celebratory of, of actually things like you all know, kind of, oh, those lists are so handy you know kind of they so they're, they've done it for our benefit, not necessarily seeing the commercial implications of those. It could, however, of course, be argued that chefs' influence over our eating patterns has been overstated and that cookery shows are just the vicarious pleasure, and that it has no consequence whatsoever on the way you know kind it doesn't shape our cooking practices at all, we just watch the TV, turn it off and not think about it. However, I could have challenged to some extent this gastro-porn argument. All of my participants stated, some very forcefully, that celebrity chefs had improved their cooking skills, whether it was introducing them to new ingredients, techniques or shortcut. <coughs> Kelly, for instance, who's vegetarian cited off Lenny again as her favourite chef, because he makes vegetarian food glamorous and tastes amazing. Um, and she pointed out that she, that she, or he had entirely, her words, influenced her decision to try new ingredients and dishes, and she had this disciple-like trust of Ottolenghi, I will cook something I don't like if he has written um, the Rizna recipe because I know I will like it by him. So there's opening up of kind of a whole new new food, food roles and we start to see kind of this pervasive perhaps influence and i'm not saying it's either good or bad but it's this i think it's a way of we should recognize this influence rather than just taking it as um something that's um also, come back to me far too late probably um, so what they along my participants in our discussions it felt they felt that chefs and them to be more creative in the, in the kitchen they, that they gave them tools gave our participants tools to kind of express their own creativity, and many saw their cooking success in part as creating their own dishes rather than kind of slavishly following um, chefs' recipes despite the whole list of specialist ingredients, um, and that following really the foundations that were laid down by celebrity chefs rather than this whole kind of replication. And what they were doing um, is in a way kind of challenging, or as the way that they explained their own cooking and how it had changed, and also kind of what... I um, witnessed as they were cooking things for me when we were talking about recipes, is they were channeling the essence of the chef almost, but overlaying um, their own tastes and skills. Cooking or following a recipe was seen less about reproducing an authentic product of the chef's making, but more about adapting and appropriating it in line with their own knowledges and their own... So we did see some, sorts, some elements of substitution. It's slightly nuanced. Sometimes they would buy a whole load of stuff and it would just, just sit in the back of the kitchen cupboard. Um, more often than not, a lot of the specialist ingredients mean, were in the back of the kitchen cupboard. But um, And other times it's like, well, you know, some of it would hold, and it will be like, actually, I now go off to Turkish supermarkets all the time where I never would do before because they've opened up this whole new world of different flavours and different kind of approaches to me in the kitchen. There is little, however, I think, to suggest that, that this adaptation and kind of, rather than slug, I don't think we have to think that chefs or consumers have to slavishly follow a chef's recipe to to have their influence. In fact, I think it's the converse, in that um, by adapting uh, recipes, and adapting and and bringing kind of that style, as they kept talking about, into their own kitchens, they started to associate chefs with Pacific cuisines or ingredients, so rather than it kind of exacerbated almost the influence of those chefs, for example, you know, kind of one would often say to me, oh, I like cooking dishes in the style of Jamie. So Jamie is always there, always kind of guiding in some way or form, even if it's not kind of slouchy following. The chef then, I think, can start to be seen as a guide or intermediary, opening up new food world dishes and tastes to the consumer. This is particularly explicit in in you know, in travel log shows and among those chefs that focus on a particular cuisine, for example, Rick Stein's Odysseys. I mean, honestly, the other end of the, the Association is just frightening what goes on in those programmes. Um, let them, oh, I'm always really <coughs> intrigued by intellectual copyright with Rick Stein. He's always going off into all of these different... We okay. this is. Oh, I think India was terrible. I couldn't bear to watch one It was like, oh look, Indian people making French bread. Who would have thought it? And it was just kind of. And then these recipes, and then they replicate. Anyway, it's a whole different ball okay. game. Um, yeah, this is not. But I think this occurs. I mean, here's an extreme example, but this occurs in any food event, virtual or otherwise, in which the consumer is introduced to a new ingredient, dish, place, or cooking technique. So my participants may vicariously be transported to different, often other worlds. But I'd also like to stress that they do not travel alone in this journey. Their journeys are discursively governed by the stuff of those that they follow, whether we're following a Twitter analogy or kind of, um, Kelly's disciple-like trust of Otelenghi. This stuff enables, arguably, the construction of new cosmopolitan identities and consumer expressions of taste. Um, I've drawn on Coles and Co to argue that. But this doesn't, I would like, suggest, negate food's capacity for social differentiation, as kind of comments about James fingers show, food practices, tastes and ingredients that were once traditionally elite um, have become more readily accessible to the masses through TV chefs, but this arguably just serves to redefine spaces of distinction and boundaries. Um, and it's still also very dependent on the economic capacity of the consumer. Democratisation has its um, limits and constraints. And just to kind of finish off, so, this sense of otherness and alienation came through in some of my, research, in my participants' responses. Um, as Lou explained, they, chefs, use all those fancy ingredients. I couldn't get them even if I wanted to, and to be honest, I'm not sure I do. Why can't they cook simple food that I can eat? And again, we see this kind of approach of, of values and affinities and the objection. She also kind of continued. I started watching Jamie's 30-minute programme, but what's the point? I think probably some of us have thought that as well. But anyway, <laughs> um, I mean, you need a food processor to start off with, and it's all right him saying they're cheap and a good investment, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, what with his millions, but I haven't got the money to buy pieces of kit I'm only going to use once or twice. So I start to see um, celebrity chefs, kind of, while they may be democratising or you know, this food notion making it available, we st- they're still open up different spaces and different mechanisms for social differentiation. Um, and the response to this by some of my kind of less economically, um, yeah know, uh, or those with less economic means perhaps, um, wasn't uniform. Response Some completely disengaged from it, whereas others kind of selected those chefs, felt best understood them and their economic and their food position. Um, I did this before kind of Jamie's austerity meals, and I should probably go back and revisit some of that to see kind of, but I, I know what the responses will be really. So just to um, conclude and wrap up, what I've tried to do is to draw attention to the ways in which consumers engage with the stuff of celebrity chefs. Um, arguing against this notion of passive con- consumers, I hope to kind of tease out a little bit the creativity of my research par- um, participants as they construct and circulate the fame and reproduce the fame of chefs through the material objects and the foodstuffs that they associate with the chefs. And the chefs you know, obviously play a part in that themselves as well. In so doing, the complicity of consumers in celebra- celebratizing that such a word, chefs, becomes evident, as does the way they create intimate and effective relationships. The stuff to which kind of I refer to here um, is more wide-ranging than it initially appears at first glance. You know, kind of I start off looking at branded equipment, and then actually thinking actually it's not just branded equipment, and it's cookbooks. They make their presence bound through a whole different, you know, whether it's ingredients. Um, or whether it's kind of other non-branded equipment. Um, Because these are the sorts of items and objects found in kitchens that consumers effectively brand themselves with a particular chef's name. These associations are perhaps more pervasive than simply referring to a chef's culinary style, as consumers construct affinities between ingredients found in their own domestic spaces with a particular um, celebrity chef. A process that, I think, draws this chef into the intimate spaces of the home and makes them an absent presence in the everyday lives of consumers. They are, however, as my participants highlighted, selective as the selective chefs with whom they form those intimacies, and the effective relationships they create are based on the chef's perceived compatibility with their own personal politics and food values. The influence chefs have over consumers' cookings and eating practices is tempered, as the chef you know, especially as the chef's activities, especially those that are transparently commercial, are filtered through consumers' own lenses of authenticity or what it is to be real and that's based on a whole number of different factors. However, I think what is going on here is that as we see with Ottolenghi, once a consumer is engaged and there is an affinity of values um, and they have established this relationship, the effects of that said chef on that um, the way the consumer Eats, you know, cooks, where they shop, you know, kind of what they're ingesting can be, you know, as Kelly exemplifies, um, can be very far reaching in terms of, and not only, and then going on beyond to kind of reading practices, how they use technology if I want to kind of continue onwards, as well as their politics. And I'll, um, I'll leave it there. So I'm just about time today. Thank you.